So often social media is used to attack and to criticise and to condemn. Some people say the most horrendous things, don't they? Shocking to see what people will write about those they know so little about. And that was just one video that I thought we could share on a Sunday morning. Because so much of what's said in social media is unrepeatable in a gathering like this. And yet maybe it shouldn't shock us. Maybe it shouldn't surprise us. Because many of us here this morning, I would guess, have experienced people attacking us with cruel, with unkind, with unfairly critical words. Because we live in this world where people say horrible things to us. And if you haven't experienced that yet, then I'm guessing that maybe one of these days you will. So what should we do when people say those kind of horrible things to us? What should, we, what should our response be when people criticise us, condemn us, attack us, seek to kind of pull us down and get to us? What should our response be as followers of Jesus? Well, Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians at a time when he was being strongly criticised. But instead of retaliating like the world does, he responded in a way that quite amazingly reflected the character of God. And we're going to read this passage this morning. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 12, right away down to chapter 2 and verse 4, just so we get the, the full picture of what was happening here. So it's quite a long reading, but please bear with us and we'll try and pull out some of the relevant uh, ideas from it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to the worldly wisdom but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything that cannot, you cannot read or understand and I hope that as you have understood us in part you will come to understand us fully, that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. 
Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us and put his spirit on our, in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it's by faith you stand. So I, make up my, I, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. In 1786, the Scottish poet Robert Burns wrote a famous poem called To a Mouse, or more accurately, To a Moose, if you want to do it in the Scottish accent. It speaks of the fragility of life and the struggles to make, make plans in an uncertain and dangerous world. One part of it says, The best laid schemes, O mice and men, gang after glee, and lee is naught but grief and pain for promised joy. Even the best laid plans of anybody, of mice and of men, often go wrong. No matter how carefully and thoughtfully we might make plans, stuff happens in our lives that just mess them up. And that's what happened to Paul. He had this plan to visit the church in Corinth twice. Visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come back to you from Macedonia and then you have then to have me, you send me on my way to Judea. So he was writing, he was thinking about it from when he was in Ephesus, and he was heading to Macedonia, but here's Corinth. So he was going to go there, then to Macedonia, then back to Corinth, and then back to Judea. It made sense in a way. It was a good plan. And he made it with the best of intentions. But circumstances forced him to change his plan. He didn't visit them on the way to Macedonia. Instead, he wrote them a letter, written in between the two letters that we have in the Bible, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There was another letter in between. But people didn't take kindly to his change of plans. In fact, some people, in response to this change of plans, this innocent change of plans, criticised them harshly. We can understand some of the criticisms from verse 17 when Paul responds, when I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my, my plans in a worldly manner so in the same breath I say yes and yes, no, no. Basically what they were saying was something like, you can't trust Paul. 
He says things without thinking. He makes empty promises. He says yes one minute and no the next. He is not a man of his word. This change of plans became ammunition for a full-scale character assassination against Paul. Of course, the criticisms were unfair. Paul says, our message to you is not yes and no. Paul was not like other people who say yes one minute and no the next. He believed strongly in the need to say what we mean and mean what we say. This is what he declared in verse 13. We do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. Paul was an open book. And later in this letter, he wrote, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception. He refused to use the same tactics that his opponents were using. He refused to say things to tickle ears or to manipulate his listeners. And he calls other Christians to do the same. For example, when he wrote to the the church in Ephesus, he says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour. For we are all members of one body. We are supposed to be people of integrity and honesty. However difficult it might be, however beneficial a little lie might seem, however much other people might do it, we must be people who are committed to being trustworthy in everything that we say. That's because that's what our God is like. Paul always said what he meant and meant what he said because he said God is faithful. God doesn't say anything lightly. God doesn't say one thing and do the other. As Numbers 23 and 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? It's amazing truth for us to hold on to, isn't it? God doesn't tell lies. He can be trusted in everything that he said. He doesn't make empty promises. And as Christians, we have come into the the experience of this because as Paul says in verse 20 of this letter, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. The message of Jesus is not yes and no. There is no ambiguity about it. Jesus is the yes to all of God's promises. He is the fulfilment of everything that God has said. That's some huge repercussions in our understanding in our lives. It means that if we don't come to Jesus, then we cannot 
fully understand God's purposes and plan for us. If we do not come to Jesus, we cannot make sense of God's dealings with humanity right down through history. If we don't come to Jesus, we cannot enter into a true relationship with God as our Father. But it also means that if we have put our trust in Jesus, if this morning we are in Christ, then we will experience all that God has promised us. Our sins will be forgiven. We will be reconciled to God. We will be accepted into His family. We will experience intimacy with Him. We will be saved for all eternity. Because in Christ, all of God's promises are yes. And so Paul says, and so through him, through Christ, that Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Through our faith in Christ, through our experience of salvation, through our faith in Christ, we will be able to say, yes, it is true. God has done what he said he would. God has kept his promises. Our God is faithful. And if this is our God, and as his children, we are supposed to increasingly be like him, then being trustworthy in what we say is absolutely crucial. It is in Comparable, inconsistent for us to say we follow the, the God who is faithful in everything he says. And for us to be people who say yes and no. And make promises lightly. But of course we're not God. We don't get this perfect. And so although we long to be men and women of integrity... We cannot always ensure that our plans will become a reality. Situations change. Unexpected events happen in our lives. That's why when Paul earlier wrote to this church about his plans, he said this, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. Paul realised that his plans were always made God willing. In the church that I grew up in, when they published little invitations uh, to different things, they always put on the two letters, DV. Somebody who's much cleverer than me will know what that stands for, but it says, God willing. Tommy? There we go. There's the Latin, Latin for it, okay. Uh, I never had a classical education, sorry. But it means God willing. Because they recognise that all of our plans, they're made God willing. They're made in the, in the Lord's will. We are not ultimately in charge. So Paul recognised that. But he was always making his plans carefully. Didn't mean that he could just make his plans willy-nilly and then say, oh well, God willing. He was careful in when he was making his plans. So when he had to change these plans, he was careful to do what was right. 
In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. I made up your, my mind. The word he used there meant that he came to that conclusion after careful deliberation. He made a very thoughtful and deliberate process to come, come to the conclusion that this was the right thing to do. He thought through that decision. And he concluded that staying away at that time was better than going and visiting them. That's why he could say right at the start of our letter, our passage we read this morning, verse 12, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. In making this decision, Paul had followed his conscience. Whatever other people thought about his decision, whatever criticisms he suffered, However, this situation turned out, in his heart, Paul was sure that he'd done what was right. He believed that he was doing what was consistent with God's holiness and sincerity. And so he believed it was the right way to go. And that is what mattered to him in the decisions he made in his life. In Acts 24, he said this, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I think that's such an important lesson for us to learn, especially if we're going through a period where people are criticising us, where people are questioning what we're doing or our motives or, or our thinking process or they're condemning us and attacking us for what we're doing. Yes, of course, listening to others that we trust and listening to their advice is worthwhile. But we mustn't let our critics dictate to us what we should do. We're not called to follow everyone else's thoughts and ideas and agendas. Our goal, our ultimate goal, is not to please them. Instead, like Paul wrote later in this letter, we make it our goal to please Him. God is the one that we live for. And so our priority should be to do what is consistent with God's Word and what is consistent with what God has impressed on our hearts. Instead of following our critics, we should follow our conscience as we submit it to God's will. So why did Paul think that postponing this visit was the right thing to do? Well, it was because he thought it was the most helpful thing to do for this church. Verse 23, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. As we read, God had made, Paul had made a, a painful visit to this church in Corinth. We'll see in more detail next time as we look at the, the, the rest of chapter 2. That this was because there was someone in this church who was doing something seriously wrong. And Paul had gone to the church and taught them that they need to deal, deal, deal with this situation and they'd refused to. 
or they neglected to. And so when Paul went back to Ephesus and he thought about that situation, he considered that situation, he realised that going back again immediately was just going to make the situation worse. It would just add to their pain. And it wouldn't really help them to move forward. And so instead of going back, he decided to write to them and give them a, a little bit of space and a little bit of time to sort this problem out themselves. So even though they were causing him pain, even though they were being unreasonable towards him, even though they were criticizing him and saying all of these horrible things about him, Paul's focus, Paul's goal, had always been to do what was best for them. we're called to do the same. Even when we're criticised. Even when we're condemned. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. No matter what other people do or don't do, our goal should always be to try to help them. Always be to try and build them up. Always be to try and encourage them in their walk with God. That's not to say that we should do what they ask us to, but we should do what we believe is the best for them. Why should we do that? Why should we do that when they're being so unreasonable and unhelpful towards us? Well, that's because that's how God is with us. Paul wrote that his actions at this time were not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. The world may tell us to give people what they deserve. So if they hurt us, if they attack us, if they unfairly criticize us, then we should retaliate. Defend ourselves, fight for our rights, grab all we can. Hit back hard. But God didn't respond to us in that way. Instead, God's grace offers to us, us who have sinned against Him, His love and His mercy and His forgiveness and His, and His acceptance and His presence with us. Gifts that we could never have deserved. Later in this letter, Paul will write, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so if we have received that grace... If we are among those who have been loved so unconditionally, if we have been blessed by this undeserved and unearned gift, then God wants us to treat other people in exactly the same way. No matter what other people do, God calls us to be people of grace. 
And even now, writing in this letter, Paul was still showing this church grace. Even although the criticisms were unfair and unreasonable, yet Paul was writing this letter to restore his relationship with them. Here he took the time to explain his actions. He didn't need to. He didn't have to justify himself to these, this, this church. They had no right to question him or his motives. But he took the time to do that because he hoped that it would help to rebuild their trust in him. I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us. That you can trust us. He wanted to restore that relationship. And through this he also emphasised his connection with them. Despite all that they have done to hurt him, to criticise him, to reject him, he wrote this, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. He didn't see himself as above them, superior to them. And said he saw himself as their partners, working together with them for their joy, for their growth, for their development in their Christian lives. And to God's glory. And then throughout this passage, he expressed his love for them. He told them how delighted he was with them. He said, we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. We will celebrate you when we get to heaven. And he told them how dependent he was on them. That they were among those who ought to make me rejoice. And he told them how deep his love was for them. I wrote to you to let you know the depth of my love for you. When you think of it, I think this is the most amazing thing that Paul does here. Here's this church who were criticising him, who were talking about him behind his back, at all this distance, saying all these horrible things about him, rejecting him, putting him down. Again, remember this church that Paul had been used by God to plant, to lead them to Christ. And here he is opening up his heart to them. Paul was reaching out to them in love. He was telling them how much he loved them, how much he rejoiced over them. He didn't give up on them. He wasn't going to walk away from them. He wasn't turning his back on them. He was still totally committed to them in love. And he was willing to open himself up to being hurt again. By expressing his love to them. Why did Paul do that? Why was Paul so committed to the people in this church? Well, because that's how what he believed God is like. Look at verse 21. It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. In our Christian lives... We stand firm, 
Not so much because of our commitment to God, but because of God's commitment to us. This was declared when he, as Paul goes on to say, he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us. He has declared that no matter what, we belong to him. He has said to us, you are my kids, no matter what. And he's put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I struggle to get my head around this. He is saying that the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives, his presence in our lives, all that he brings into our lives, He is only the down payment of what Christ has paid one for us on the cross. There is still so much more to come. And His presence in our lives, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is the pledge, the promise, the guarantee that all that Christ accomplished for us on the cross will be ours. God is completely committed to completing the work that has begun in us. God is committed to it. And He will complete the work that He started in us. And so if God is so committed to us, even though we often fail Him, then surely it can't be too much for Him him to ask us to be committed to each other. So this is a picture of the example that, that God wants us to follow. Although we live in this world where people often jump to criticise us or condemn us or reject us, God doesn't want us to follow the example of this world. Instead, He wants us to follow His example. He wants us to be trustworthy in everything that we say because God is faithful to all of his promises. He wants us to be careful to do what is right because our God is holy. He wants us to be eager to do what is helpful because our God is gracious. And he wants us to be committed to loving others because our God is totally committed to us.